Hello, and welcome to the Burning Cold Theater's podcast series, Into the Fire with Jerome Davis. Hi, this is Jerome Davis. I'm the Artistic Director of Burning Coal Theatre Company, and I'd like to welcome everyone to Into the Fire, the Burning Coal Theatre Company podcast series on all things theatrical. Today we have a special guest. Sitting here with me is none other than my wife, Simi Kastner, who is also the Managing Director at Burning Coal and has done many set design and graphic designs for the theatre over the years. Simi, welcome. Thank you. So uh, we want to start off, as we often do, by just asking you to give us a little bit of an idea of your background. Where did you come from? How did you get interested in the theater? What was the path that led you to the place where you are right now? So uh, I'm from lots of different places. Uh, Jerry, you're very fond of saying that I'm I'm a physics brat. Uh, my father was a physicist at uh, beginning at a time when you didn't make a lot of money doing that. Um, he started off as an academic. And Before the A-bomb, basically. It, yeah. Started off as an a- academic and then decided that he needed to work for industry in order to keep his family alive. And he never really liked working for other, other people. So he would work for a place for three or four years and get, get upset with it for one reason or another and move on. So I I really moved every five years growing up. And I I lived typically in suburbs of big cities over the years. Um, I first became interested in theater through my sister, who was a pianist. And she she accompanied uh, musicals when she was in high school. And it was a great source of... Of pleasure for her and I would sing while she while she practiced. That's great. I had no idea. I didn't know that. Yeah and we had a it was one of the things that we really bonded over when when I was growing up Uh and um, and that's how I first got interested and so by the time I was in junior high I was I was definitely committed to participating in school and really by the time I was in my first year of high school I thought I was going to do something professional in the theater. Mm -hmm. And what was that? What were you interested in? Were you thinking about yourself as an actor, as a musical theater person or other? What else? I don't think I was that clear about it by then. I I had started, by the time I was in my first year of high school I had started doing both on stage and off. And I, so I was involved in chorus and I sang and I also did solos. And uh, so I did, I did musicals, but I also did uh, straight plays. I did Shakespeare um, and I worked backstage and I became more and more interested in backstage. I, I uh, really, by the time I, I entered college, I was convinced I was gonna work backstage and I was gonna stop acting. And for working backstage meant uh, set, design set design and also set painting. And this was uh, back in the seventies, right? Uh, yes, you're going to embarrass me by talking about how old I am. No, yes, I it was in the seventies. You graduated very, very early as a as a as a uh, an infant. Yeah. I graduated. Yeah, yeah. but uh, <laughs> uh, you had some. Uh, I, I know the story already, but our listeners don't. Uh, you had some problems uh, when you attempted to go to college uh, to get a degree uh, as a set. Well, I wouldn't call it problems exactly. So, oh, I, all right. So, yes, I did have some problems. So, um, I, for a minute, I, I didn't realize which, direct, which story you were pointing at. Um, 
Yeah, so the 1970s were before, um, before sexual harassment was defined. Um, and uh, in, in late high school, I was applying for set design jobs and or set design uh, slots at, at colleges. And uh, one of the necessary requirements uh, for one of the application processes I was involved in was a portfolio, or a couple of them actually. And the portfolios included working drawings that were drafted, and I did not know how to do drafting. So I went to the drafting teacher at the high school and said, can you teach me how to do this or how can I learn how to do this? And he said, I will not teach you how to do this. You're a woman, you're a girl, and girls don't do this, so I won't teach you. And I said, well, can I have the tools and I'll read a book and I'll figure out how to do it myself. And he said, no, I won't give you the tools. You're a girl and we don't teach this to girls. Girls don't, shouldn't do this. And I even think, I may be remembering this wrong this long ago, but I even think he said something about, about uh, supporting a family and how men, men needed to support the family mm -hmm. and women didn't really need to do that. And uh, so I wasn't gonna let that stop me, so I went home and told my parents about it, and they marched down to the principal's office and said, we're getting some of these tools, and they got me the tools, <laughs> and I locked myself in the basement and taught, me how to, taught myself how to draft. And, um, and so that was my first experience with that. And then uh, when I got into college- You had a basement that locked from the inside? <laughs> well, I spent a lot of time in the basement. Gotcha, um, gotcha. There was actually a door. I can't remember which side it locked from. Um, but so, uh, and then I went to college, and in my first year of college, I had a set. To, I had a set. So we had a required backstage class. <coughs> college for you was uh, at Northwestern North University, right. in the theater program, and uh, the teacher said in the at the beginning of the stagecraft class. Um, the first thing he said was, I'm infinitely bribable. Anybody who buys me a Ferrari gets an A. And the second thing he said was, um, he said to me, probably privately, he probably did not announce this piece. He said to me, there's nothing you can do in this class that's going to get you an A because you're a girl and girls shouldn't be in stagecraft. And true to his word, I got an A in every, on every test. I got an A on every crew, every required crew from all of my crew leaders. And he gave me a B in the class. And so you hung around Northwestern for two or three semesters? A, a quarter, actually a year and a quarter, which was a big controversy in my household because I went back and it was very expensive. But I, I wanted to prove that I could do it. And so I went back for one extra quarter and then gave up because frankly, I didn't have the intestinal fortitude to, to buck up against all that sexism. Hmm. So I came back to American University. Where your mother was employed at the time. She was the assistant to the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, right. and it was free so she, because she of that. She was a secretary, basically, yeah. Um, it was actually a little more than that. She was, it, was, it, was a, it was a secretarial position, but it was a pretty advanced one. There was yeah. other stuff she did. Yeah. Did a lot of project management for them. Sure, they just didn't call it that. Um, but but uh, she also did a lot of typing with an IBM Selectric, mm -hmm. um, which she was very excited about because it had that automated whiteout thing that they had then. Yeah. That was a big deal, yeah. way before computers, um, or before laptop, before personal. Before computers. computers would fit inside your house. Before computers would fit on your watch. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, 
Um, it was free, though, because of that. Okay, so you went back to America, and you, you left Northwestern, yeah. and you gave up... Which was expensive. A theater. <laughs> you gave up design. Did you give up theater at that time? Yeah. Okay. Uh, completely. And uh, I actually uh, was in the chorus at American University for one quarter, maybe one semester, and, and dropped that as well, mm -hmm. and stopped having anything to do with theater for a while. But I had a great experience there. Um, my mother's boss was a woman named Ruth McFeeder, who was just amazing. And she decided that she was going to be my counselor. Uh, she, you know, so normally the dean of, 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 of the Art, College of Arts and Sciences does not counsel people, but I was my mother's daughter, so I got counseling from Ruth McFeeder. And Ruth was a former gym teacher. She was a coach. She knew mm. how to coach. And so she coached me in a way that I had not been coached before, which is to say, here's what you will do. There was no, there were no options, no. right? And she said, you are going to take a wide variety of courses and figure out, start again, figuring out what you want to do. And so I took a class in history and a class in literature and a class in math, which was a computer science class, mm -hmm. and a class in painting because she said it would be a waste for you not to take an art class. And uh, I was crazy about the painting class, absolutely crazy about it. And I found I kind of liked the computer science class as well. Mm -hmm. And that was important because if I was gonna be, I, I realized that theater, you could rationalize that you were gonna make a living, but painting, you could not at all rationalize you were gonna make a well, living. Well, maybe after you're dead. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, but not until you're dead, yeah. which doesn't really work. It's not a good plan right? uh, yeah. going forward. Yeah. So then I decided I better make a living and computer science was a great way to make a living. So yeah. I ended up majoring in both painting and computer science and by then I had all these distribution credits from Northwestern so I actually got two degrees and, and the, just the, to say in the 70s the idea of uh, painting and computer science uh, felt like polar opposites yeah I would imagine. it felt like they would never have anything to do with each other and of course now we know way differently yeah yeah there's a lot of uh, young people that that are it seems to me quite uh, brilliant artists uh, using digital technology and I think absolutely that, like it's because they start very young and there's never a point where they're discouraged from doing it in the way that artists are often absolutely and the other thing I would say about that is that you know when we were growing up there was this idea of the left and right brain and I always thought it was a pile of crap you know I always knew that whatever it was that was going on in my head did not have divisions mm. and that creativity was equally active in in the science side as in the art side and now everybody's saying that's true it took mm. you know whatever 40 years for science to catch up to the facts right so um, so painting uh, at American University was a big deal. That was a, one of the things that that university is, is sort of known for, is it not? It was. I, I was very lucky. And interestingly, so when I was interviewing for colleges, I actually interviewed at, um, at Yale, which was a, a whole other funny story. Um, and uh, they recommended at that point that I go to American because of the classes I had, uh, the schools I had applied to they felt it was the strongest painting program and mm -hmm. it was a fantastic program. 
Yeah, you're, you have a teacher, you had a teacher who was there that said a couple of things that, that, that have carried me a long way in my life. One of them was, uh, um, if you want to see if a painting's any good, turn it upside down. I find that that philosophy uh, of life really is something that can, uh, can be applied to almost anything and, and, uh, and, and is a really good way of looking at uh, uh, the value of, of, of an idea or the value of a work of art or the value of anything, really. Um, <clears throat> Sim, uh, after college... And the other one was? Oh, uh, style is what you have, whether you like it or not. Just paint. paint. Yeah, just paint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, there was actually a third one uh, oh, that really? he also told you. Um, I was not around for any of this, but he he told you um, a good a good artist knows when to stop, knows when the painting is done. Right. Uh, yeah. And those are all very, you know, things that almost daily in my life, you know, I, having learned them through you, through him. Um, I think it was them actually. I think those were two different. So the two, the two, uh, I had many great teachers at that school, but the two that you're referring to are Ben Summerford and Robert Darista, mm -hmm. um, neither of whom is living now. Uh, but they were both terrific teachers as well as terrific artists. And Darista is considered a, a fairly major artist in America, would you say? Is that right? Um, I don't. I don't think either of them. I think both of them did great work and are known in a in a as part of the Washington School. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think any of them are. So they both worked with uh, sort of higher tier uh, artists very closely from the Washington School. Um, but I I think neither of them is that well known actually. Right. Right. And so out of school, um, the, the tug is between uh, painting and, um, and, and computer science. Is that right? And, and obviously, eventually. So for the first year, I tried to do both and, yeah. and discovered I was neither, I was not doing that well at either, and I was also exhausted. And so I finally stopped painting and really really focused on the computer science work. Well, you were painting when I when I met you. And, I kind of went back to it. So oh, so after a few years of really working at the computer science side, I was missing the painting side. So I I backed off of computer science and started working part-time in painting. Mm -hmm. And uh, tell me about your work in the computer industry. What, where did you go? What did you do? And, uh, and Boy, that is a very long story, and I'm not sure how much of it your audience wants to hear. Well, jump, um, jump from point to point if you can. Uh, so I started off, um, I, I always threw myself into the toughest stuff. So I started off in very low-level uh uh, coding that was right against the machine, which was considered heavily technical and not what a girl would do, which I think is part of why it was appealing to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wrote, I did that stuff, uh, assembler language and operating systems. Um, and then I, I took a side turn into teaching. Uh -huh. And I, I worked uh, at Intel Corporation uh, teaching chip and board design and, and taught timing diagrams and all of that stuff. Um, and uh, had a stint where I traveled across the country with these things. And the, the challenge there was that these were, this was the days before computers were at all portable. And so making these things work, you, you ended up having to sort of take all the broken pieces that showed up and make a few working systems out of them so you could teach the class. Um, and then I, uh, 
I went from Intel to, I decided to move to New York because uh, I felt like it. You had been in D.C. I had been in the D.C. area. And uh, I moved to Dun & Bradstreet where I, I did uh, voice editing and, and searched for the voice using a database and, and the software language. Yeah. I find it, it turned out to be a, one of the companies that I worked for later. Um, which was a, a funny coincidence because I ran into the voice I had edited when I arrived at that company. So that was kind of fun. Um, but so I did that for a while and then an opportunity came up to work at Oracle Corporation. And that uh, was a wonderful opportunity and I worked there for many, many years. I was there for about 13 years. And I, w I worked in the education services group and then did some consulting at the end. Mm -hmm. And we met during that uh, And we met during that time, time right? the very yeah. end of that time. And by then I had, I had moved up the ranks and I was managing Oracle Education Services operations in the U.S. And I did that for about four years. So had me, about 128 employees. Let me ask you this. Um, you said uh, just a few minutes ago, you said, I always throw myself into the hard parts first. Why? I think that I, I am, have constantly all my life wanted to prove myself. I think that I've been, I've been f fighting my own opinion of myself and my perceived opinion of other people of myself all my life. And probably a lot of that comes from being a woman in a man's world. It was always, it was always a challenge. I would always walk in the door and people would think I was insignificant and I would have to show them I was not. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you still still feel that urge today? I think so, yeah. yeah. I would say that I always look for the hardest thing to do. I know that uh, the arts have been a part of your life from very early on. You had a, growing up in the first Chicago and then the D.C. area, you had a lot of opportunity to see great art. Um, were, were there specific things along the way, sort of touchstones that, that have uh, impacted you and c that continue to, to influence your life, do you think? Well, that is truly a great question. There are a lot of them. So I know part of what you're, what you're getting at is, is that when I was growing up in Chicago, I lived near the Art Institute and my mother was very fond of taking me to the, to the Art Institute. Um, and uh, so I saw very early on uh, George Surratt's Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte. Mm -hmm. And it was, so it was, it was family. I would visit it periodically. And when Sunday in the Park with George was written, I was among the first people to see it. Um, because I was living in New York at the time, there was no way I was missing that. Mm -hmm. You uh, saw it at Playwrights Horizons before it opened on Broadway? No, I saw it early on in the Broadway, in the Broadway run, you know, in which previews is when I in saw the Broadway it too. Yeah, run. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I did not see it at Playwrights Horizons, yeah. which I wish I had. Yeah. Um, but then between, between then and New York, um, there were lots of, of pieces of art that I saw um, during my art education that became important uh, over the years. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm a big fan of the Dutch masters, mm -hmm. um, particularly Vermeer. Vermeer. Vermeer, yeah. Yeah, um, I love Vermeer. And, I, and uh, also when I was young, I used to pay lots of visits to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum where there is an, there was, and now again is, an absolutely brilliant Vermeer, which much to my dismay was stolen 
and disappeared for a number of years and I believe has recently been returned to the mm-hmm. museum. I just want to tell our listeners right now in this little interlude that we're recording this at our house and that our dog Margot is in the background essentially eating the house while, <laughs> while this podcast goes on. So lest you think that that's... Um, you know, uh, the actors at Burning Coal uh, making those uh, those growling noises in the background or Alex's uh, stomach rumbling or something <laughs> like that. Uh, that is not. That is our dog, Margot, who's making her debut, uh, podcast debut as well. And Jerry refers to her as the, the most adorable spawn of Satan you'd ever want to meet. Pretty much that's that's a good description, yeah. So, uh, but you, you've, you've buried the lead. I mean, yeah, the island of uh, Le Grand Jatte and yeah, Vermeer, but... But what about theater? You, you had a lot of interesting theater experiences. Okay, in that's what you're after. All right. Um, yeah, so I had an, an extremely fortunate upbringing when it comes to theater. So I, I exhibited the interest in theater very young, and my parents were really good at recognizing when their kids were interested in something and feeding that. Mm-hmm. And so they started taking me to, to great theater very early on. And so I saw, um, I saw uh, um, Peter Brook's Midsummer Night's Dream not once but twice in my teens. Um, he, uh, we, we took a theater tour to England and we saw a bunch of great stuff. Um, notably, Alan Akeburn, we saw an Alan Akeburn absurd play. Person yeah, we saw yeah. absurd yeah. person singular. That was big back then. And we saw, um, we actually saw a great uh, play, which, which I thought was a great play at the time, called I and Albert, which was about Victoria and Albert, and and that was very moving to me. I remember enjoying that very, mm-hmm. very much. Mm-hmm. And also a great play with Deborah Carr live on stage. Mm. Um, but then later, I saw, um, I saw uh, the Jason Robards and. Um, Colleen Dewhurst. And Colleen Dewhurst's version of, of Moon for the Bisbegotten. Wow. Which was a phenomenal theater experience. Um, I saw, you know, Pippin in, in mm-hmm. its run before it, it made, it came to Broadway while it was still mm-hmm. um, at, uh, at the Kennedy Center before it went to Broadway. Um, with Ben Vereen. With Ben Vereen. Um, Trying to think what else. Well, you were you saw uh, many things at the arena over the years, right? You were yes, a I saw I saw Inherit the Wind with um, Prosky. With yeah, with Robert Prosky. I'm feeding her her lines. Yes, yeah, he is. Thank good. Thank you for that. We actually saw a lot of great stuff. We saw Walk in the Woods with Robert Prosky as well. Sam Waterston and Sam Waterston. Yeah. Uh, so so arena was a fantastic place to see theater. Before arena, we actually had a subscription to. Um, uh, the Washington Theater Club, which is which is was a weird little theater that existed for a while that was run by uh, by a, a a theater and movie critic uh, who who worked for one of the the TV stations there, mm-hmm. and that was great stuff. So we had that subscription. We went to we we went to that regional theater, and then we subscribed to Arena, and were there for for many years and saw really saw Robert Prosky grow up as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was it was pretty great stuff. And then in New York, uh, I, I followed that up by joining the Vivian Beaumont mm-hmm. and, uh, and saw the, uh, the Waiting for Godot with Steve Martin and Bill Irwin and um, F. Marie and Abraham. F. Marie Abraham. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And there was one other, uh, uh, Robin Williams. And Robin Williams, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, 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 wow. And you saw the Madonna Speed the Plow, too? I saw the the Madonna Speed the Plow. I'm not sure I'd put that in the same league with those others. uh, (laughs) uh, And I'm just curious, did you see uh, at Arena the Great White Hope with uh, James Earl Jones? I did not. Uh, That's too bad. That's one you let get away. That might have been before before your time. That was in the 60s. Uh, Yeah, it would have been before my time. We didn't move there until... Until 1970. Yeah, yeah, okay, just barely missed that one. Um, and uh, and so, uh, when uh, when you were asked uh, by a person you were dating at the time if, if I wanted to, uh, if you would go to the south uh, where you had never lived, what caused you to say yes to that? Let's go south and open a theater. What in the world were you thinking? At oh, that why point? the heck not? Um, uh, Throwing yourself at the hardest thing again. Well, you told me we weren't going to have to work too hard. You uh, promised me. I think I um, did say that, didn't I? So, you know, I will follow you anywhere. I think that's part of the answer. Um, I have always been passionate about the theater. I've always been passionate about the arts. Um, I believe there are lots of ways to reach God, and the arts are one of them. And if you, if you truly work at a work of art, you will be able to bring people with you to a, to a place that borders on the religious. And so I think that's as good a thing to do ethically as anything else. With that, uh, we'll wrap up the podcast for this week. Uh, Simi, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for joining me. My pleasure entirely. Thank you for listening. Our production of Connor McPherson's The Weir will run from Thursday, November 29th through Sunday, December 16th. To purchase tickets or for more information, visit our website at burningcoal.org or give us a call at 919-834-4001.